I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So there's a road that I sometimes travel through. It's a very pretty road, two lanes. It, it drives through a, a gorgeous valley. And on this road, there happens to be a casino. And then right after the casino, there's a nature preserve. And so there was one morning that I was driving along this road and I see the casino in the distance. And even though it's a very early Sunday morning, I can still see cars coming and going. People coming in for the day and people leaving. It's always a busy place. And then as I, I pass the casino, it, the, the road winds around. And before I know it, I'm driving through a vast expanse of a nature preserve and the road stretches before me for quite a distance. And as I'm driving, I can't help but notice that there is this group of, of crows, a murder of crows, as they call them, that is gathering on the road, and then a car comes by, and they all fly away. And then they gather on the road again, and then they fly away, and then they come back as cars are passing on, the, on, the, on this highway. And I start wondering, like, well, why are they doing that? And as I'm approaching, I begin to see that on the road, there had been some roadkill. And it looks like it had been there for a while, or at the very least, enough cars had passed through that this roadkill was essentially a, a smear on the road. Just bits and, and pieces of, of matter and blood streaked across. That's all it was. And that's what was fascinating these crows that kept gathering around to peck at the, at the remains to devour them and then fly away each time a car came across. Very risky thing. These crows could have easily been the next roadkill right, right alongside that smear. And I have to admit, it might sound a bit harsh, but I looked back at the casino that wasn't really in my rearview mirror at that point, but it was metaphorically. And I looked back at the crows with their little game of the smeared blood on the street. And I thought, eh, pretty much the same thing. Now, that's easy for me to say because I haven't been a fan of casinos my entire life. You see, when I was a teenager, very early on into my teens, probably 12, 13, maybe 14, uh, my parents thought that casinos, especially in Vegas, would be uh, one of the best places to go for a family vacation. And if you've been to Las Vegas, I don't know if you know, but there's a lot of things for adults to do there. In fact, that seems to be mostly the point. Not so much for teenagers to do, a few things for kids to do if they're young enough to enjoy a lot of carnival rides and cotton candy and that kind of stuff. But for a teenager, Las Vegas was one of the most boring places I could possibly go. And not only that, but it was loud, 
it was smelly, it was colorful, and I couldn't do anything anyway, even if I had wanted to. When you're a teenager and you go to Vegas, you're too old for all the kids' toys and too young for all the adults' toys. So what I ended up doing was spending a lot of time in the hotel ordering room service. And I suppose that would probably be one of the perks of Vegas is the they got some good restaurants, I guess. Room service isn't so great. Some people seem to like the buffets, but I didn't find a whole lot there that I could enjoy. But I could see the way people do seem to enjoy a place like Las Vegas and the casinos there. And I'll admit that when I think of them, these places that people go for fun, I end up thinking about the what are sometimes called the eight worldly winds or eight worldly concerns. And if you don't know them, the, the first set uh, are gain and loss. After gain and loss, there's status and uh, what some people might just say simply is like loss of status, but uh, it might be disgrace is one way we can also translate it. After that, we have praise and with what some other people sometimes follow up with blame. But we might also say that the opposite of praise might be disapproval. And then the one that most people are familiar with in this set of eight, pleasure and pain. Now, I, I might sound disparaging when I talk about a place like Las Vegas or places like casinos and compare them to the kind of games that crows might play with roadkill. And it is a game, by the way. I don't know if you know how intelligent crows are, but they're able to recognize faces. They collect little baubles and trinkets for their collections, and they have a huge social hierarchy. So if they're doing something like that, they're doing it on purpose. And if I seem harsh in that comparison, it's actually uh, something that the Buddha himself spoke harshly about as well, that those who went off and indulged in intoxicants and ended up gambling away all their money and their savings weren't people he would consider to be wise. But by comparing them, those activities, to the eight worldly concerns, it's important to realize that those same concerns, those same cravings and uh, aversions to those polar opposites are things that we approach no matter what kind of life we live. It's just sometimes easier to look at certain examples and see them right away, straight away. When someone's gambling, let's say, they're very concerned with their gains and their losses. When someone's gambling, it's really easy to see their concern with their status, you know, whether or not they're a high roller or loss of status, whether they're the fool that lost all their money. Their desire for pleasure and pain is also very obvious. Praise and disapproval, hard to say, but I think that there's a reason why Las Vegas came out with their slogan, Everything that you know, happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I have a feeling that people are often concerned about the disapproval 
they might receive from the activities they've done there. But these eight worldly concerns are things that happen to, to us just as much as they are things that we actively do. You know, on the one hand, the Buddha compares uh, the eight worldly concerns to those who are uh, worldlings who haven't been instructed and those who are instructed in the ways of the Dhamma and how they treat it. But it's also just what happens. It's an aspect of life. Oftentimes things out of our control, whether or not we have gained things are sometimes out of our control, whether we've lost them and so on, whether we experience pleasure and pain, all of that. The difference that the Buddha talks about, though, is the way in which we approach these concerns in our mind. That's the important part. The worldly person, the person who hasn't either learned the Dhamma at all, or the person who ends up just kind of practicing and thinking about things but not really, not really letting it sink in, has the same problem. And that's the problem of welcoming all the good aspects of the worldly concerns, while at the same time rebelling against the negative aspects. I can give you an example from my childhood, uh, beyond just not liking Las Vegas. I apologize if that's off-putting, if you're like a big fan. In fact, I actually uh, had overheard recently that someone uh, had encouraged her own mother to go to a Buddhist temple by suggesting maybe they go to the casino afterward. <laughs> so, I don't know. Some people seem to like it, and if it's enough encouragement to get them to go to a temple in the morning and then have fun at a buffet later, I don't know. But in any case, these are, these are things that affect even small children. I remember that when I was young, I, I cared very much about whether people accepted me, whether they valued me and respected me. So I was very concerned with my, my status amongst my peers. And this would end up leading me into very silly situations that, of course, mortify me now, but they're, they're so small <laughs> that when I share them, I can't help but feel, that, feel they're silly. You know, I remember one time when I was in first grade, there was a girl who was sitting next to me and she was talking about various allergies and food-related things, and we happened to be eating this pumpkin treat. And I didn't believe that there was pumpkin in it. I don't know why. Like, it was a can of pumpkin puree added with other stuff and everything. But, you know, I, I wanted to be smart, too. So I said, well, you know, it's a good thing there isn't pumpkin in this treat we're eating that our teacher put together for us. Because I'm actually allergic to pumpkins. And the girl who was sitting next to me, she looks at me. She says, you're allergic to pumpkins? Yeah. You're eating that? Sure am. And I said it all proud and confident because I wanted to appear smart. And she immediately runs to, the, to our teacher and announces to her that I'm, I'm allergic to pumpkins and I've been just chowing down on this pumpkin treat that she had made for us. And the teacher rushes over and she says, you're allergic to pumpkins? And I said, uh-huh. And I'm still eating spoonfuls of this stuff. She says, stop eating that. I'll be right back. And then she goes and calls my mom, who knew for a fact that I was not allergic to pumpkins at all. 
And so the teacher comes back and now she's very calm and not concerned, but I'm too proud to notice these things and also too young. And she comes up to me and says, so how are you feeling? And at this point I'm like, oh, maybe she's on to me a bit. You know, I actually feel okay. She says, no, no problems eating the food, huh? I said, no, I, I really like this actually. She goes, you know, there's pumpkin in there, right? Oh, I, I guess there is. You're allergic to pumpkins? Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe I got better, right? And it just, she just kind of nods and decides she'll just leave it there. When I got home, uh, my mom did not. When I was older, in, in sixth grade or so, uh, you know, a lot of video games were starting to become popular. And uh, I had friends that would play these, these wrestling, like, you know, WWF at the time, WWE now, video games um, on whatever console they were playing. And I remember that I did not have this console, and I was also not a fan of wrestling. But because I didn't want to be left out of it, I pretended as if I was also playing this game at home. And... Most of my friends ignored it. Like I would say something and maybe it'd be a little off and they go, yeah, anyway. And they would talk about some aspect of the game they enjoyed. But I had one friend who was starting to get wise. He, I, I just said stuff that didn't make sense or I didn't say anything at all, really. Just kind of agreed with what everyone else was saying. And so he pointedly asked me some aspect of the game and I had no answer. Like, well, how do you, how do, you do this one combo with this thing and this character? And I said, oh, I, I don't know. I must have forgotten. And he just looked at me and he's just like shaking his head. And, you know, those are silly examples of a child, but we can see how, how early on we're, we have this baked in, this, this chasing after these, these qualities, you know, and the aversion that we have. Like, I didn't want loss of status, right? I didn't want disgrace. And the irony, of course, is by chasing after it so hard, I was making the very thing happen. By, by trying to put myself up and have this status, I was proving myself a fool. So when the Buddha talks about these qualities, these worldly concerns, there is this aspect of how we, we chase after, how we, we crave and lean into these things. You know, the, the word he uses is welcoming, but I, I think that we can even use a stronger way of looking at it, these things that we chase after. We do chase after gain and status, pleasure and praise. These are things that we run after, things that we want, things that we hold of, of high value. The person who has understood the Dhamma enough to practice correctly trains their mind differently. Again, it's not so much that the activities we do will prevent us from experiencing these things, and they're converse, right? We will not only experience gain, but we will experience loss, and all the way down the line. But we can approach them in a very different way, in a way that frees the mind of those concerns. The Buddha points out that with something like status, like I was concerned with, rather than chasing after it, I could have recognized something about status. That status is inconstant. That status is stressful. That status is not reliable. 
especially in terms of, of my, my own happiness. Because it is something that, because of its inconstancy, because of its impermanence, is not, is not lasting, is not secure. And I can work really, really, really hard on my status and put a lot, a lot of effort into it, make it my job. In fact, one might say that a lot of the stuff we see online these days is very concerned with status. And the term we use is influencer. And what is an influencer if not someone with a lot of status, a lot of clout, a lot of things we could say about that. And we can work so hard to get these things and put all of our identity into them, build up a whole world and sense of self around it. And then, despite our efforts, it's something that fades away, crumbles, breaks down. We don't often think this way, and we don't often talk this way, but this is even true of the Buddha as a teacher, in terms of the accidental side of these qualities. Because the Buddha is a, you know, was an arahant, fully liberated, he wasn't weighed down mentally by these things. But he, as a person in the world, experienced gain and loss, status and disgrace, also experienced praise and blame, also experienced pain and pleasure. As I was concerned with status, there were times in the Buddha's own life when his status was called into question because even in his lifetime as the teacher that he was, there were people who did not believe him, people that did not like him, people that wanted to undo his work and discredit him. There were things that he gained and lost. There were friends that he had that died along the way. By the time the Buddha had passed, so had friends of his like Sariputta and Mahamogalana. His own son Rahula, by many accounts, was already presumed to be dead as well. You know, we can see all the things that he had gained and all the things that he had lost. And if he had been clinging to them the way the average person does, building up a self around those things the way most of us do, and expecting lasting happiness out of those things, then he wouldn't be the Buddha, right? The fact that he was able to free his mind was what freed him, was what gave him that security and that happiness. I was reminded recently how the Buddha talked about happiness, how he talked about happiness as a, as a treasure, as, as a gift, something worthy of protecting and keeping close. But he also said that True happiness, the only happiness, is peace. Over time, I've noticed this and others have noticed this. Some of my teachers have noticed and commented on this. How that particular phrase, that idea, that conception of what happiness is, has been twisted into something else. Rather than saying that peace is the only happiness, we often talk about peace as the highest happiness or the greatest happiness. And perhaps this phrasing exists because we want to believe that there's other kinds of happiness other than peace. But when we look really close at how happiness works in us, when we 
look at what actually is that feeling of happiness, it's almost sometimes like a sense of relief when we've had that itch and we finally had the chance to scratch it. And it, it can be this moment that lasts very, very uh, a short amount of time, but there it is. There's that sense of relief, that sense of contentment, that sense of, ah. And that feeling, the Buddha would say, is true happiness. But the difference between the way the rest of the world often functions and the way that someone on the path functions, and then even further, the way someone who is awakened functions, is that sense of, ah, becomes something that lasts more and more, becomes more the state of being for someone internally, within their, their mind and their heart. And this does that magic through releasing oneself from defilements, releasing oneself from greed, aversion, and delusion. And it also means, in the case of these worldly concerns, freeing the mind in the same way by thinking on these characteristics of inconstancy and stress and further, not self, not building up a sense of identity about these things that seem like happiness can even be a kind of short-term happiness but is not our long-term welfare, not our long-term peace and security, which is what we're after that secure, independent sense of happiness. So it might seem like a roundabout way to approach this topic by starting off with the casino. But truth be told, you know, I, I try to, to build my talk around the things I see. And what I've been doing a lot lately, other than staying home a lot, is driving. Because anywhere I go is pretty far away. And so I suppose I could have come to the same topic had I driven past an Arby's or a McDonald's or a shopping mall. But I just so happened to see that casino. And it reminded me of the things I saw as a young man, as a teenager, because I was able to do something that most people don't get to do when they go to Las Vegas. And again, it was a trip my family took quite a bit. I think for a while we were going almost every year staying at different uh, casinos, hotels, is that I was able to be an outside observer, almost like an anthropologist, because I wasn't the one having the fun, I was the one witnessing it. And I was the one witnessing what people did and what they gained and what they lost and what they had and didn't have. And sometimes I even found myself in, in points of, of danger. One story I don't think I've ever told anyone uh, certainly not my parents, who would have been quite scared had they known, is that one of the times that we were in Las Vegas, I had been kind of restless with nothing to do in the evening, and my, my parents had given me permission to go and explore the, the hotel and casino. You know, there was an arcade and other stuff for young people to do. And there was one point in all of that where I was pretty done. You know, I'd spent all the coins. There wasn't anything to do with the casino anymore. It's not like I had any money of my own. There was nothing else to do because all the adults were going to the clubs and gambling and all that. And so I decided to, to step out into the pool area behind the casino. You know, they had this closed off pool area for guests who were staying there. And it was a beautiful full moon night. So I was just sitting there looking at the moon and quite honestly preferred that over all the other activities I'd been witnessing. And then I was approached by a man. And I was probably 16 at the time. And this was a, a grown man. 
and he came up and he started talking to me. And I didn't have a whole lot to say to him. But he had asked me, like, oh, are you, you're staying here at the hotel and everything? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, having a good time? No, oh, fine, not really. And he goes, well, you know, like, I've got some, some buddies of mine. I can be back in 20 minutes. Are you still going to be here? And I didn't want to disagree with him. So I was like, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll be here. And he goes, okay, great. And he, and he goes off. And the moment he, he left, I left. Because I didn't know what this guy had in mind. And I certainly didn't know why he needed his friends along. So I left. And so that's the kind of place that has been for me. So I haven't been back to Las Vegas since I was 17. Pretty sure. Certainly haven't gone there to enjoy the place as an adult, and that's been quite a while now. So I look at that place, and I feel like I see it for what it is. But if that sounds harsh, again, it's just a snippet, a snapshot of what we might see all of life to be in terms of its dangers, in terms of the drawbacks of looking for happiness and safety in this world of samsara. What we're looking for is a kind of independence. That's why we talk about it as liberation. When we talk about this goal that we have in mind as, as people who practice this Buddhist path, it's to be independent from all of the dangers of this world and all the other worlds, all the realms of, of heavens and hells and you know, the animal and ghosts, all of it, because they're not secure, they're not last, that these worldly concerns are the same concerns we find all the way up and all the way down. So we're looking for security, looking for a mind that's free. So that image does stick with me, that image I saw on the road. In fact, I, I talk about it as if it's something that happens very recently, but it happened about a couple months ago, maybe three months ago. But it's an image I come to again and again because I can use that image as a reminder anytime I myself start getting caught in this web that we have with all of its temptations and all of the various things that, that I can use in this world to make myself very happy and very sad and laugh and cry and look at all of that as some kind of freedom. But true freedom is the peace that comes from being removed from all of that. From gain, from loss, from status and loss of status. From praise and disapproval and pleasure and pain. To go above and beyond all of it. That's what I try to encourage myself to do every day now. And it's the same encouragement I share with all of you. So I think I'll end my talk there. Thank you. <laughs>